Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 90 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the death of Chief Designer Sergei Pavlovich Korolev, Part 2. Sergei Korolev's life paralleled in many ways the life of Werner von Braun. Like von Braun, as a young man, Sergei Korolev was inspired to dedicate his life to the technology for space exploration after becoming acquainted with the work of a great space pioneer, Ermann Oberth, in the case of von Braun and Konstantin Tiakovsky in the case of Korolev. Both began their careers in space development through serious study, participation in amateur rocket societies, and then support from the military. Both spent the 1930s working for brutal totalitarian regimes, with which each had to make some peace in order to survive and continue doing research. Both were arrested by these regimes, the Nazis in one case and Stalin in the other. Both worked on projects of such strategic importance that as distasteful as it was to each, the leaders of both dictatorships had to be appealed to and dealt with directly in order to make any progress. Just as the German immigre, Werner von Braun, was a driving force in the United States for contributing an Earth-orbiting satellite during the activities of the International Geophysical Year in the mid-1950s, so it was with Ukrainian emigre Korolev's vision, tenacity, and commitment to that same effort that enabled the Soviet Union to be the first to open the space age of man on October 4, 1957, with the launch of Sputnik. Both died prematurely, many years before their work could be brought closer to completion, and both saw one overarching goal for mankind in space, trips by man to Mars. We left off last episode just after Sputnik 1. After that, Korolev continued rattling off successes, launching the first dog, Laika, into orbit on a Vostok on November 3, 1957. By 1959, the chief designer would become the first to impact the moon with Luna 2. Korolev's real ambitions, however, lay with manned spaceflight, for which he developed a more advanced spaceship. In the 1960s, the Soviet space program came to resemble the cautious personality of Sergei Korolev, who wanted definitely to explore space, but to do it in a relatively safe manner. Because of safety concerns, Korolev made sure his designs evolved gradually over time, always using a design that worked safely and building on the success, with one notable exception. The Voss could program, which was forced on Korolev by Khrushchev as a prestige program. It was an abnormal design that substituted three cosmonaut seats for the ejection system. This risk was taken so the Soviet Union could beat the United States in launching a three-person crew into space.
Now let's take a more personal look at Korolev. I was curious how he interacted with his cosmonauts. Here's an example I found. In 1960, Korolev met his cosmonauts. Alexei Leonov described how the meeting went. The chief designer was a shadowy figure, yet it was he who ultimately had the greatest influence on our lives. At the end of the first six months, we were summoned to the Institute of Aviation and Space Medicine in Moscow and told we were to meet the chief. We were excited. I remember the first time I caught sight of him. I was looking out of the window when he arrived, stepping out of a black limousine. He was taller than average. I could not see his face, but he had a short neck and a large head. He wore the collar of his dark blue overcoat turned up and the brim of his hat pulled down. Sit down, my little eagles, he said as he strode into the room where we were waiting. He glanced down a list of our names and called us in alphabetical order to introduce ourselves briefly and talk about our flying careers. Sergei Korolev had been a test pilot in the 1930s. We knew that about him, but little more. When Korolev came to Yuri Gagarin's name on the list, he seemed to warm to him right away. Yuri turned red in the face and got slightly flustered. Korolev seemed amused. Crinkles started to appear at the corner of his piercing dark brown eyes. He put aside his list as if he had forgotten about the rest of us and asked Yuri to talk about his childhood and career as a pilot. They spoke for maybe 15 minutes. Eventually, the meeting continued as before. When he came back to me, I said I had six sisters and three brothers. Your mother and father did a very good job, he said, smiling. He seemed to like me, too. After the chief left, we all gathered around Yuri and said, You are the chosen one. I told you, my friend. Years later, I discovered that I had been right. Korolev had left us met with other designers in the space program, and confided, This morning I met a handsome Russian man with lively blue eyes, sturdy and strong, an excellent pilot. He is the man we should send into space first. But all things were not going well with Korolev. On December 3, 1960, he suffered his first heart attack. During his convalescence, it was also discovered that he was suffering from a kidney disorder, a condition brought on by his detention in the Soviet prison camps. He was warned by doctors that if he continued to work as intensely as he had, he would not live long. However, Korolev became convinced that Khrushchev was only interested in the space program insofar as it had propaganda value and Korolev feared that Khrushchev would cancel it entirely if the Soviets started losing their leadership to the United States. So, he continued to push himself even harder. On April 12, 1961, Korolev surprised the world again by launching Yuri Gagarin, the first cosmonaut, into space and bringing him back safely to Earth. But, of course, that was not enough. 
and he was continually pressed for additional great space feats by Khrushchev and party leadership. Also in 1961, Korolev made the fateful decision to proceed with the N-1 moon rocket. It was never given adequate funding, and Valentin Glushko, with whom Korolev had long had a rivalry, refused to build the kerosene engines Korolev considered a necessity for spaceflight. Glushko instead proposed using enormous hypergolic engines powering the equally enormous UR-700, which Korolev refused to endorse. Korolev attempted to go around Glushko by asking the Kuznetsov Design Bureau to build a large number of highly efficient kerosene engines to power the N-1. By 1962, Sergei Korolev's health problems were beginning to accumulate, and he was suffering from numerous ailments. He had a bout of intestinal bleeding that led him to being taken to the hospital in an ambulance. In 1964, doctors diagnosed him with cardiac arrhythmia. In February, he spent 10 days in the hospital after a heart problem. Shortly after that, he suffered from an inflammation of his gallbladder. The mounting pressure of his workload was also taking a heavy toll and he was suffering from extreme fatigue. Korolev was also experiencing hearing loss, possibly from repeated exposure to loud rocket engine tests. Also in 1964, there was a major shift in the political climate of the Soviet Union. On October 13th, the day the Voskhod 1 crew returned from orbit, they received a telephone call from Nikita Khrushchev who was at his retreat in the Crimea to congratulate them on their successful mission. Within a few days, Khrushchev was summoned back to Moscow and dismissed. Deposed from power, he was shunted into retirement and replaced by Leonid Brezhnev as first secretary of the Communist Party. The change in political leadership had little effect on the Soviet space program, Though Khrushchev had shown little enthusiasm for space initially, he had come to appreciate the enormous political capital to be gained from the Soviets' early superiority in space exploration. He had given the program his full backing. Brezhnev was to do the same. This was the political climate for the Voskhod 2 mission, and our opportunity to gain a little more insight into Korolev's personality. Despite intense pressure to push ahead with the space program, it was policy to conduct tests of unmanned spacecraft prior to manned missions, which were considered particularly risky. Voskhod 2 was such a mission. Three weeks before launch, an unmanned prototype was sent into orbit from Baikonur. It exploded. The explosion happened when confused signals sent from the ground triggered the spacecraft's self-destruct device. The device was incorporated into unmanned craft in case they went out of control and threatened to land in populated areas. By that time, the prime crew, Alexei Leonov and Pavel Belyev, the backup crew, 
and the most senior designers and engineers on the program, including, of course, the chief designer, were already at Baikonur. Korolev came to see Leonov and Belyev in the hotel just hours after the explosion of the unmanned craft. This is how Leonov remembers the conversation. Korolev was not well. He looked exhausted and strained. He had been suffering from a high fever as a result of a lung inflammation. But nothing would deter him from consulting with us and ensuring our safety. Late that evening, he sat down with us and presented us with a stark choice. All the data from the unmanned mission had been lost, he told us. We have only one Voskud vehicle remaining, which is ready for immediate launch, and that is your vehicle. If we use this vehicle for another unmanned launch to test the equipment for your spacewalk, your mission will be delayed by a year until a replacement spacecraft can be built. What is your opinion? It is up to you. I cannot tell you what to do, he continued. There is no textbook answer. Nothing can prepare you for exactly what you will experience on this mission. There are risks. There is no doubt that there are risks. It is your decision. Then Korolev very shrewdly added that he believed the Americans were preparing their astronaut, Ed White, to make a spacewalk in May. He knew how to get to our competitive juices. He must have known what we would say. We didn't want to lose a year. We were at the height of our preparations. That night, in late February 1965, we were full of self-confidence, and we felt we were invincible. Despite the risk, we said, we are ready to fly. And, of course, they did fly, and Alexei Leonov became the first space walker. Following Voskud, Korolev campaigned to send a Soviet cosmonaut to the moon. Before Khrushchev had been deposed, he had directed Korolev to at least accomplish a circumlunar flight by 1967 in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Because of this deadline, Korolev pressed his rocket design bureau to develop liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen engines for all three N1 stages. Following the initial reconnaissance of the moon by Lunas 1, 2, and 3, Korolev established three largely independent efforts aimed at achieving a Soviet lunar landing before the Americans. The first objective met by Vostok and Voskhod was to prove that human spaceflight was possible. The second objective was to develop lunar vehicles that would soft land on the moon's surface. The soft landing would ensure that a vehicle would not sink into the dust accumulated there by meteorite impacts. The third objective was to develop a huge booster to send the cosmonauts to the moon. The most difficult of these objectives to achieve was the third one, the N-1 launch vehicle, a counterpart to the American Saturn V. This rocket was to be capable of launching a maximum of 110,000 pounds or 49,895 kilograms into low Earth orbit.
The pressure and work schedule continued to adversely affect Korolev's health. And now we'll move on to the final days of Sergei Korolev. As 1965 drew to a close, a large party was organized at Korolev's design bureau, OKB-1. This is how Alexei Leonov described the event. All big factories and enterprises, at least those run by a sympathetic director, organized such parties at this time of year. But this one was special. Around 500 people from the Bureau were invited to the party. Fitters, engineers, designers, and other scientists. A number of those from the Cosmonaut Corps were also invited, including Yuri Gagarin, Pavel Belyaev, Vladimir Komarov, and myself. In the enormous hall that normally functioned as the staff canteen, Tables were beautifully decorated for a buffet. There was plenty of food and champagne. There were fireworks and balloons. A jazz band made up of engineers and others from the Enterprise played. Korolev danced with his wife, Nina, and with several other women. He was in great demand that evening, and he liked to dance. He was very sociable, not at all the person he was when he was at work. He rarely had the opportunity to attend such parties because of his hectic schedule and heavy workload. But among those he trusted and loved, he became almost a different person. He was relaxed. He told jokes. He was the life and soul of the party. We felt very comfortable around him. That evening, I decided to ask Korolev for his autograph. It is something I have never asked anyone before and have never since. But when I approached him and handed him a photograph of myself, he wrote something which was both warm and wise and which I took to heart. It said, Dear Lyosha, may the Milky Way not be your limit and let the solar wind not pass you by. Korolev seemed full of vitality that night. He had the physique of an ox and looked strong and stocky, yet his health had been failing for some time. He suffered from numerous medical problems, most of which had their origins in the terrible hardship he had suffered during his years of imprisonment as a young man in one of Stalin's remotest gulags. A few weeks before the party, he had been diagnosed as suffering from a bleeding polyp in his intestine. On January 5, 1966, he was admitted for tests to the special clinic in Moscow that treated all top Soviet officials. Several days later, he was allowed to come home so that he could celebrate his 59th birthday with his family. On the understanding that he would return for an operation to remove the polyp the next day. On the evening of January 10, 1966, Korolev invited Gagarin and me, together with some members of his family and a small group of academics and scientists, to celebrate his birthday at his home. He lived in a two-story detached house, modest by today's standards, set in a small garden of cherry, apple, and fir trees surrounded by flower beds full of tulips. 
and carefully tended roses. The house was Korolov's personal sanctuary. He worked such long hours that he had little time to socialize. His wife was an accomplished musician, and both loved the theater, but they rarely had time to go. So Korolov installed a large projector screen in his living room and ordered whatever films and newsreels he wanted to watch to be delivered to his home. Yuri and I arrived that evening carrying a birthday present, which was a large bronze statuette entitled To the Stars, which everyone in the cosmonaut corps had signed. It was so heavy, it must have weighed over 50 kilos, that we had a real struggle carrying it through the snow to Korolov's house. It kept slipping on my shoulder and ripped a button from the sleeve of my new overcoat. That night, Korolov proposed many toasts. He was full of praise for his team. We have great work ahead of us, he said. With mutual understanding and hard work, we will be able to complete every task that lies ahead. Then, turning to Yuri Gagarin and me, he proposed a more personal touch. Among us are two young men who, to our great joy, have fulfilled their mission brilliantly, he said. He then came to thank us both individually. As he shook my hand, he said something that made a great impression upon me, though I did not understand its full significance. He said he viewed my spacewalk as the last major work of his life. As the evening drew to a close and people began to drift away, Korolov drew Yuri and me aside and asked us to stay behind. The servants cleared the long dining table at which we had all been sitting, but left one corner laid afresh. They brought out delicious Pirotsky meat and cabbage pies, which Korolov's housemaid loved to cook a bottle of smooth three-star American cognac, which was Winston Churchill's favorite, was set on the table. The servants retired. Nina, his wife, went to bed. When the three of us were alone, Korolov began to talk. It was almost as if he were talking to a priest, as if Sergei Pavlovich were in a confessional. He told us the extraordinary story of his life. As Yuri and I sat listening, it was hard to believe that the great man who sat before us had endured so much. We had no inkling that night that Korolov wanted to talk because he felt he was close to death. He knew he had to return to the hospital the next day, but it was for a routine operation. The Minister of Health... Boris Petrovsky, who was a friend of Korolov, was to perform the operation, and told him that it would not last long and he would feel no pain. His wife later said that after he left for the hospital, she had found the pockets of his suits and jackets turned inside out. He had apparently been looking for two kopeck coins to take with him to the hospital for good luck but had not found any.
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.